Hi, my name's Nick Farah, editor of Social Work News Magazine, and you are listening to episode one of The Social Chat. I am a social worker. I know not where I'm from. I guess I'm just a means to an end. I make a friend and then I'm gone. Thank you so much for joining us for this first episode. Now, the social chat is an extension of Social Work News Magazine and of our online platform, and we are dedicated to using those platforms to put the voice of social workers firmly front and center where we think it belongs. We want to celebrate your achievements and your milestones. We want to talk about the things that matter to you. We want to speak with the people that you want to hear from and highlight the issues that are important to you. So for this first episode, which of course is airing 12 months on from the start of the pandemic, from the first national lockdown, we thought it would be really interesting to talk to the people working on the front line in the sector, in adult services, in children's services, in charities, about the impact that they have seen on the sector firsthand, about everything that has brought us to where we are now and what the picture looks like going forwards. As we speak, the vaccines are rolling out across the country, across the world, And for the first time in many months, we're all getting a glimpse of what life could look like at the end of all this. But what is the reality of the social care sector in a post-COVID world? So earlier this week, I spoke with John Brown, Director of Strategic Partnerships at Bernardo's, about how the past 12 months have been for him. And John spoke to me about a lot of things. He spoke about domestic violence, hidden harm, the impact on children's mental health, the impact on education and how even though we've seen the social care sector rise up and work so unbelievably hard in the past year, how he feels that now is when the real hard work begins. So, so I think the pandemic does really threaten to leave a legacy of um, quite a toxic combination of poverty, uh, increased opportunities, unfortunately, for exploitation, um, anxiety, isolation, uh, family breakdown and, and financial uh, worries for, for, for quite some years to, to come. And then to add to that um, really troubling and concerning mix, obviously charities um, right across the country have, have never been more stretched in terms of need uh, and, and also have, have been significantly impacted themselves in, in, in terms of reduced, reduced income as well. In, interestingly, I joined Bernardo's as a stri- um, director of uh, strategic partnerships on the 9th of March. Um, so I, I spent one week um, were meeting face to face with people at our headquarters, and then we went into lockdown. So um, the rest of my uh, work has been um, remote and uh, and and, and uh, on Zoom and, and and various other platforms, um, in common with everyone else um, in the organisation and the sector and, and the country as a whole. So um, that's been an interesting introduction to a, a very a very big uh, children, children's charity. We, we've certainly seen communities facing really significant, serious challenges to um, mental health, both very immediately in terms of um, bereavement um, and, 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 and death as a result of the pandemic, but, but also just really significantly escalated worry and concern in relation to missed education, Financial concerns, financial security has been a, a really key issue. And physical health as well, really, as, as well as the mental health impacts in, in relation to the, uh, 
the ongoing effects of of, of COVID uh, for, for for some people who have had it and then and then uh, recovered, but are, are still are still experiencing the the impacts as well. So we've had to think uh, really carefully and and uh, really, really innovatively in, in terms of the way way we we respond to uh, that, that 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 growing need. Uh, and one one thing that we we've, we've really learned, I think, over the last twelve months is is the uh, the interrelationship, the importance of interrelationships. I think really between um, bigger charities, bigger organisations like Bernardo's and and local um, uh, organisations and local delivery as well, and enabling um, families to access uh, local services as well that they might not be aware of. Um, or, or, or local services that, that just needed that additional ad, uh, extra additional support and elevation in terms of their profile and sometimes their resourcing as well. So we played a key role in that over the last 12 months to really partner up and link with a, a, a much wider network of, um, of, of, of smaller organisations right across the country. And I, I think that that partnership and that interrelationship is going to be is key learning for us as, as we look ahead and move on out, out of the pandemic and the way in which we think about planning and structuring our, our, our services for the for the future as well. I think there's a mixture of uh, real worry for, for what could be a, a real tidal wave of hidden harms coming to light um, uh, and, and the, the legacy of miseducation of, of unfortunately increased incidences of, of, of domestic abuse, other 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 forms of abuse um, that have just not really uh, seen the light of day so far. So some real apprehension about about that and how as a, as a sector we, we go about um, uh, addressing that and, and providing the necessary help that's needed. But also I think a, a real optimism and, and 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 hope for the future as well because of what we've learned from from this pandemic in terms of different ways of working. Uh, what I've talked to you there about uh, earlier about interrelationships, about partnerships, um, and about innovation and, and being able to innovate at, at speed and at pace as well. So I think um, that there's there's significant amount significant amounts of learning there, and I think also ensuring that we have um, communities and families really much even much more at the centre of um, co-design and, and, and co-delivery of, of, of the uh, of the help services that, that we continue to provide and continue to innovate as well I think that, that that's going to be key so it's a, re- a, re- a real mixture I think I, th- I think really but also that that recognition that um, it's going to be tough for an awful long time and we as a, a sector are going to require I think it would be right to say continued government focus and government assistance I think really to to, to really help to, to lift um, children and young people um, up from uh, you know kind of what what they what they've missed out on during the, during the pandemic, but you know, very tangibly in terms of education, um, but also the, the, the impacts in terms of the, those longer term mental health impacts. And I, I think though the um, the provision of community based, um, both face to face and and online um mental health support and provision is is, is going to be abs- absolutely key i think we need to recognize that this is a going to be a, a very long-term um move out of uh, out of the pandemic um and and we need to be realistic that um uh you know as far as we can see and for what the emerging science is telling us um we, we've got these long-term impacts of covid um that we're going to need to continue to, to manage and deal with but also um, the reality is that we need to be uh, mindful and alert to the, pro- the prospect of, the, of future pandemics as well. Um, 
that, that this is this is not probably not the not the last because of a, co a, a co combination of circumstances to, to, to do with population sizes, the environmental changes, all those sorts of things. Uh, we like like to see further, further pandemics. So I think um, that points to even greater focus on um, innovation, on, on on collective working, on 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 um, communities coming together and working together and co-producing solutions at a local level. And, and bigger organisations like Bernardo is acting as a real facilitator and enabler and catalyst of that, I think. I think within local authorities, um, within the voluntary and community sector and, and further afield, social care is, you know, children's social care and, and it, of course, in adult social care as well. We, we, we've done, a, done some heroic efforts and fantastic jobs, I think, really, in, in, in terms of continuing to offer help, support and protection for vulnerable children, young people, and families, I, I think it's been absolutely outstanding, and has really reiterated, I think, why people come into social work and social care in the first place, and that the, the real, uh, a real underwriting of the, of, the, of the important values, I think, really that, that underpin that the the, uh, the the work and the reasons why people come in to want to do it. But we do, we should have much more, more more recognition for. The, the critical importance of, uh, of, of the work that people do in, in, in children's social care. Um, it's it's we we hear too often when things go wrong um, and, and when uh, you know, mistakes are made or, or, or when there are tragedies, of course. But day in day out, what, what we don't hear about are, are the, the, the the transformational effect of, of, of social work with, with children and young people and families, uh, and the way it can can really turn right turn lives around. And the way it can really act as a as a, as a buffer uh, and as a support to, to, to families moving um, out of sometimes some really difficult ingrained situations. So we do, we need to um, I think step up the promotion of that and use whatever means we ha we have and whatever communication means we have to, to tell those really positive stories, uh, as well as highlighting the ongoing very real problems and disparities that, that have been um, uh, that have been uh, brought brought to light through through the pandemic as well. For Chelsea and her husband Luke, it's been a really interesting year. Their first year as foster parents. Chelsea spoke to us about the challenges that faced them early in 2020 as new foster parents to a hearing impaired teenage girl and learning British Sign Language. Within weeks of welcoming her into their home, Chelsea and Luke were also helping her to deal with lockdown, homeschooling and the transition to completely online support and services. So we were approved in October 2019 and um, we had um, a, a little boy at first for respite. That was our first placement, just um, nine nights it was. And then we didn't get um, our next placement until the middle of January and we had a call and that was um, for a teenage girl um, and she was also deaf as well. We had her until the end of July. So um, obviously the first few weeks were just settling in. We, we were trying to learn basic BSL. And then um, it was actually her 14th birthday in March. And the week before, um, it just, well, it just started coming out about um, like having to self-isolate and things like that. And she got a cough at school. And obviously they weren't doing testing and stuff then. So we all had to isolate. Um, that literally started the day before her birthday. Um, so we had to do a lockdown birthday. And then um, lockdown started the week after that. 
Our fostering agency's um, main office um, was in Leeds. So um, we were travelling to Leeds to do like um, training and support groups. They used to do like a monthly um, support group for foster carers. Um, and then obviously that all stopped. And because it was just so like what on earth going off it took them took a while to like get into the process of doing things online um but then we started up with microsoft teams we were still having like our uh, supervising social worker i mean she was absolutely amazing um she would bring us up whenever we needed we've got um, a whatsapp group for foster carers as well so we couldn't keep in contact through that just to support each other School were really good. Um, we had to do a lot of like homeschooling. Um, that was really difficult because not only we were trying to homeschool teenager, which we've not done well since we were at school ourselves, um, but we were also having to communicate it in BSL and we were still new at that as well. So that was really difficult, but school helped us a lot and they did a lot of online Zoom calls and things like that with her. So that was really, really positive. Yeah, I mean, obviously it is. It was difficult, and um, that's the one thing that we've found with having a teenager for our family. It's quite difficult to get that balance because we've got um, our own little girl, and she she was only eighteen months at the time. But it is just about finding out about each other, and you know, asking the questions like if if she wanted some time alone, do you want to go and spend? an hour in your bedroom or um I used to um sometimes go on walks with her just me and her as well so she was still getting that bit of time with you know because she was away from her friends um teenagers especially they you know they need the friends around them at that important time of their life because of our age difference there was actually only like 12 years between us so she kind of looked upon me as a friend as well as as that kind of parental role um, so she could confide in me more and you know I tried to make that very clear to her from the beginning that we were always there to support whatever you know she needed um, that was nice and it was just finding things that she liked to do that we could do in the house um, so she did struggle with homeschooling but we found um, things like baking she absolutely loved cooking and for me life skills are so important to children these days so if that meant, you know, we did cooking and she'd learn how to make a full meal for us, um, you know, how to chop chop things up properly, how to weigh and measure. Um, we were constantly baking and things like that together. Um, and, and yeah, we're just finding those things that she did enjoy doing. When she first come, um, I'd bought like whiteboards and lots of pens and paper so we could kind of communicate in those first few weeks while we were getting to grips with the basics. Um, but it also gave me extra time to be able to look um, up courses online and things as well. So I was able to do that in an evening. And um, yeah, I was I were quite thankful in that way that our communication was really, really strong considering we'd never known any BSL beforehand. Um, it, was, it, it was really positive in, in that respect. Um, I mean, we were lucky just before um, our foster daughter left in July, lockdown had kind of started easing a little bit at that point, and we booked um, like a caravan holiday. So we went away for a week, which was really nice. Um, there wasn't much open, but you know, we we found things to do, and and we had a lovely time. And I think 
that's such a big part of fostering for us, being able to go and explore and do all these amazing things and show these children what, you know, is available in life to them because that's what we've always done with, with our little girl and children thrive off it as well. So, you know, we, we loved going to farms and zoos and, and things like that before all this. So once we've got, you know, the go-ahead, that'll be the first thing we do. We won't be having a weekend in the house <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> I'm getting a bit cabin fever. <laughs> Becky Salter is a social work student studying at the University of South Wales. As one of the founding members of the Student Social Work Hub, Becky has seen for herself and through the experiences of her friends and peers just how difficult a year it's been for social work students. As she comes to the end of her third and final year, Becky chatted to us about the reality of working and studying at her dining room table for the past year, her concerns regarding lockdown placements, and the lack of first-hand experience she and her cohorts are hoping won't impact their chances on the job market. This time last year, I was on my 80-day placement um, for my second year. So in Wales, we do it slightly differently. But because I was based in the prison setting, um, obviously the, the Her Majesty's prison, you know, they were getting very concerned about, you know, Visits were being cancelled and if you didn't need to be there, they didn't really want people there, um, which, you know, I fully understood. You know, we were we basically had a call. Um, there was myself and another student and we had a call one day in, in the office, um, you know, a few days before just saying they really want everybody to kind of go home right now. You know, if you, if you aren't like, absolutely essential. It was strange in that, you know, we didn't get to say goodbye to anybody, um, didn't get to sort of have like a proper ending with the men that I've been supporting. The on-site supervisor um, wasn't in that day, so I never got to say goodbye to her. Didn't ever get to see my practice educator again <laughs> um, and stuff, you know, so it was all a bit surreal because we just kind of went home and, and it was in that early stage of people not really knowing what was going on. But we were kind of like, oh, you know. I remember when I submitted my final essay, which I, th I think that was due around the May time. Um, so we were like well into lockdown, you know, then. Um, and I just remember submitting that last essay and just feeling really flat. And just because I was like, you know, I'd written it at my dining room table, like I'd written other ones, but like I hadn't been able to go into university, I hadn't been able to get any extra books or like be in that environment. And instead of just having this big, you know, like, oh, right, that final essay done, portfolios in, can really relax now and celebrate finishing the second year. It's just, there wasn't an ending. It was just like, oh, okay. So my, I know lots of universities are very different, um, but I haven't been back into university. Our, our university campus um, didn't uh, open for us. I, I think, I think they discussed, I think it did for some courses that were, quite practical so I think it did for some but it had to be really selective and um yeah just trying to get to grips with you know the, the format of um you know the way that the lectures were being delivered um yeah and it, it was it was very odd it was it was very much thrown into it kind of like turned it into feeling like an open university course and you know for me particularly I didn't take the open university route because I didn't want to do it that way <laughs> but it very much felt like you know okay so you know it had to be really strict about setting that time at home. I was at a meeting the other day and some other students in Wales they're final year students who should be doing their 100 day placement 
still haven't got placements and they're really, really concerned now about whether they're going to be able to finish and complete their degree um, because it's a component of the degree, you need to do it. But I think, you know, the, one of the things that's come through from a lot of students is the fact that you just, the majority of our placements, we're just working from home and that's the same as everybody else, but then we're just not getting that experience of working in a team, being in the office and learning in the way that we would learn off your colleagues. So, you know, some days I just kind of sit here and I've got nobody to bounce my thoughts off, you know, and just kind of think, I don't know if I just did the right thing there. And then you, you, you're having you're having to phone people that you've never met before and have teams meetings and stuff. And, and it's, it's that difficult, you know, those throwaway conversations that you'd have maybe in the kitchen, making a cuppa with people. You, there's, I think there's lots and lots of missed opportunities right now for, for some students on placements because they're just not getting to do what they would normally do and that's not anybody's fault but I do think it's a it's a gap and it's a concern of students because we're just not we know that we're missing out on some things but there's no real way to rectify it I think it's daunting really and I'm trying like I don't want to be negative I don't want it to be all doom and gloom but I just think it's realistic and and I think there's quite a few feeling the same way because like I was, I was talking the other day, you know, that there's, there's a few people in my cohort now that are beginning to apply for jobs. Um, you know, I know that this is kind of around the time when you get into the end of your final year placement that you start looking around. And, you know, for me, I'm just, because I've not been in that office environment, I haven't seen what I was expecting to see in my final year of like, oh, I know how that team works because, you know, the offices are right next door to each other or in my case like the, the majority it's all open plan so you can go and talk to somebody in the duty team you can go and talk to it and you can find out about those things and from what I've been told you know as long as you're creative and stuff people are always willing to go yeah you know hop in and come and do this home visit with me if you like and find out and you've got a better, better understanding of how teams work with one another so then I think you've got a better feel of like what you really feel comfortable with yeah, I, I don't quite know what I want to do. And I don't know if I've got the most out of this opportunity yet because I've been limited within it about what I can and can't do. So am I, you know, should I should I see if there's a job and apply for a job in this area? Because at least I've kind of got 50% of the knowledge of what I need to be doing. Or, you know, should I go for another area where, you know, are they going to take me on knowing that I've got no experience at all? It's just, it, yeah, it is a bit, I think daunting is the right word, you know, unless you absolutely concrete and you know what you want to do and that's that's it I think it could be quite daunting right now I know what most most of us are you know we're adults you know a lot of social work students come into this a little bit later in life and you know and, and but it's GCSEs you know kids at school GCSEs A levels you know that's all been drastically altered they're not taking place so we've been taken into consideration how much school they've missed and I completely get that but I knew that I needed to be in a lecture hall with a tutor to bounce ideas off and other people and look and stuff. And that that's kind of like my learning style. So to have had to kind of almost do all of this in isolation, but yet there's been no, there's been no allowances for that at all. It's just like your social work students kind of and get on with it. The only thing I'd like to see from universities now is them to start having a discussion about graduations. Because for me, that was all I ever wanted. I just wanted to, you know, make family proud, have that day where I got more, you know, got the certificate. And it was just that, that has always been my end goal, you know, to think of, well, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to get that and that'll be, because nobody in my family's got a degree. So 
you know for me that was going to be a big thing and and you know my kids and stuff just to be like right all those weekends I've ignored you this is kind of what it's for and there's just been no mention of it at my uni and I've just started talking to other students about this now going has yours mentioned anything has yours mentioned anything and I don't think many have and it's like well Reading Festival's just been announced and Camp Festival's been announced so we could have you know there's only 21 in my cohort we could have a socially distant the uni could do that so I think I'd be really disappointed if that, that didn't come about. I think that would be one thing now that would be really interesting to go, are you going to get behind some of the students now and actually think about those, that aspect is really important and that could be like the one real, oh, it might have been really shocking <laughs> last year, but you're going to graduate and we're going to put on a graduation <laughs> So, yeah. Finally, we spoke to Lindsay Hood, a care home administration manager from Surrey who contracted COVID weeks into the outbreak of the pandemic and went on to develop PTSD as a result of her experience. Well, we went into lockdown a lot earlier than what other some other nursing homes did in the in the local area. Um, we sort of preempted um you know what might happen and you know it, our, our our main priority was to protect our residents we also put into place arranging for transport for our staff so that we could get them off of public transport and get them into the home safely I volunteered um to to be one of the main minibus drivers um, um so it was all hands on deck really um I, I you know I um finished work came home and it wasn't until later on in the evening that I started sort of you know to feel unwell yeah my husband I, I was due to go out and do a minibus run that evening and go and pick the night staff up um and my husband off to do it and said it's okay just you know have an early night you know it's been a it's, it, you know it's the end of a long week I thought yeah it's just I've just burnt myself out it was the temperature. I did have, um, I did start coughing um, as well the following morning, um, uh, but it was initially the temperature. I tried not to think that that's what it was. Um, and I messaged, because it was the weekend by then, and I messaged my boss and told her how I was feeling. You know, she said, okay, let's see if we can arrange to sort of get a test done. Because at the time, um, you know, the, the testing isn't like it is now. Um, you know you it was only very specific people that were allowed to go along and, and have tests and they had to be booked through the organization you couldn't just go onto the website yeah, like you can now and book a test so uh, it was actually organized through our head office for me to go along and have a test later on in the week I was worried initially and my main concern was, um, you know, how long had I had this for, you know, because it was it was very early on and we didn't know what we know now. Um, and my, you know, my immediate thoughts went to um, everyone at the home, basically. And the thought that um, I, OK, I've been driving the minibus, I've been picking staff up. Have I put anyone at risk? And uh, very guilty feeling of retracing my steps where have I been what have I been doing 
and then just um you know the the more unwell I got um it, I was just so frightened just so so frightened I'd have days where I felt sort of slightly better um and I could sort of get up and out of out of bed I'd actually moved into the front room at this point um to try and isolate myself as much as I could from the rest of the family but then the following day literally you're just floored again with it and I was getting weaker and weaker I wasn't eating um I couldn't eat I was being sick I couldn't keep anything down um and my temperature wasn't budging at all it was horrible because I, I I couldn't see an end in sight. I was um, I was tired because I was scared to sleep. I was scared to go to sleep in case I didn't wake up. Um, my fear was for the my children. Um, what was going to happen if something happened to me? And it's not a conversation I ever thought I would I would have. You know, none of us think that. You know, I, I'm you know okay. I'm I'm no spring chicken, but I'm not. You know, particularly. You know, I'm not that old that sort of. You know death's just around the corner um so you you never you never think that you have to start putting plans into place um of what will happen you know with the house and you know what will happen with the children and yeah it was just awful absolutely awful um very difficult conversations to have when they first took me in um you know I was being treated as covid patient and um I was put onto supplementary oxygen and literally all sorts of tests were done they literally just put all sorts of antibiotics into me you know IV um and they they packed me off home and it wasn't until I think the might have been the day after I got home I think it was the day after I got home I got a phone call from the hospital um telling me that I something shown up in my test results and I had to immediately get myself back into hospital um which was terrifying because they wouldn't give me any information over the phone I didn't know what was wrong with me what I was expecting I didn't know if I was going to be taken in and hooked up to a ventilator I literally didn't know until I got there and again you know as soon as I got into the um the emergency department they literally just it was just everyone flocking around me again and um I was then told that they'd uh, in the bloods that they'd taken while I was in a bacterial infection had grown in my body and was attacking my vital organs um and I was borderline sepsis yeah it was it was pretty scary nobody around you for support and not knowing if I was ever going to go home again it thoughts like that you know you try to stay positive and you try to you know think it's okay they're going to patch me up send me home but you never you know there was no guarantees because nobody really knew that you know we didn't know what we know now um but all in all it was probably about a month uh, yeah a good month four weeks um that I was unwell for you know the time loomed where I had to go back into the office and um you know my my manager had assured me they'd moved the office around so that you know desks we could socially distance and that they'd put notices on the door you know because my, my office is like Piccadilly Circus at the best of times it's you know it's the point of everyone comes you know to, to my office when they need something basically um and you know it, I was really fearful of that um and it it was really tough um when I first went back I was I was like a, a scared rabbit 
you know, in the office, um, every time the door opened, I'd, I'd jump, someone was coming in and, and then, you know, if more than sort of a couple of people came in, um, you know, cause I do share the office with other people. And, you know, if, if my colleagues had people in, I, I, I'd, I'd panic. I, I just used to panic and I just used to, I used to run and I'd, I'd go and I'd, I'd run to the loo and I'd hide in the loo, um, until I could compose myself and go back out again you know, trying to put a brave face on it uh, and trying to be normal. Um, but I could, you know, I could hear sort of colleagues saying, you know, are you okay? And, you know, you're not quite yourself. And my manager was really concerned. And she said, you know, you've really, you've lost your spark. Or, you know, I can understand what you've been through. You know, what can we do? What can we do? And, you know, offering me counselling. And I'm I'm a very private person and I don't find opening up to sort of people I don't know very easy or I didn't. Um, And I was quite anti um, having any counselling to start with. And Helena, my manager, kept pushing and nagging Um, because she could see I was really struggling and she said you know please ring the counsellor please ring that just ring her please just ring her if if, you know give it a go if it's not for you it's not for you but you've tried please you need to do something so I did I bit the bullet one day and sent an email off and you know made an appointment to to see her um, on a zoom interview and um, yeah it went from there really and I found that talking about it helped you know because I was carrying a tremendous amount of guilt also, when I was working from home and I knew what was going on in the home, that was really hard because I couldn't be there to support anybody and I felt useless. So it was coming to terms with all of those feelings um, as well as um, the fact that I had been unsa- so unwell and um, the impact of, of that as well. You know, it took a long time before um, I, I felt comfortable being at work. Yeah, feeling feeling a lot better and a lot more comfortable in the home and now actually really quite eager to be back in there full time. It's nice to be there. You know, my place is in the home. So it's having an impact on the staff, not being able to, you know, to see their family and, um, you know, to socialise. We've all, you know, everyone has made a lot of sacrifices and um, it's been tough but but yeah, definitely. I think with the latest, you know, with the whole roadmap in now, I think we can see light at the end of the tunnel, and we're focusing on things, you know, that we know that we will hopefully be able to do in the not too distant future. And uh, we've got our our relative visits back up and running, which is amazing. Um, it's so so good to to see people visiting again. I can't wait for the day when we can fling our doors open and welcome people again across the threshold and and have the home as a home and uh yeah looking forward to getting back to normal thank you so much for joining us for this first episode as we took a look back at the past year but now it's time to turn an eye firmly to the future I'd like to thank John, Chelsea, Becky, Lindsay and David for their contributions and of course the fantastic Ed Donovan for the use of his wonderful music. Now as this is our first episode we wanted to end with something a little bit special so we reached out to a friend of ours, a student social worker and a fantastic poet by the name of David Grimm 
And David had a very special message that he agreed to share with all of you. Many tales tell us of the glorious dead, but in my head, we are the glorious ones because we are still here. We're still pushing ahead. You and me, we are the darling buds of May, sprouting up through the ground and reaching to the skies. We have aspirations, lofty goals of reaching that cerulean blue. Lofty goals of growing higher than the trees and flying amidst the birds. Many tales, many fables, many stories of old tell us about the dead and the bold. But you and I, my friend, we are the ones that the world will know. We are the kings and the queens of tomorrow. I am a social worker I know not where I'm from I guess I'm just a means to an end I make a friend and then I'm gone I am a social worker By accident or default And now I'm part of this system of a machine that rages on 